This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight you're joined by Colin. Howdy. And Joe on the desk tonight. And me, Vanessa. So thanks for tuning in. Tonight we're going to bring you our election special, a focus on where technology meets policy and a few little tidbits on uh, electronic voting, some things from the Australian Computing Society. But before we get to that, let's have a little bit of news. Colin. Just a couple of issues. One, uh, we we covered uh, a few weeks ago the ongoing saga of forced Windows 10 upgrades. Yes. Yes, and a a woman in uh, California who runs a travel agency got a $10,000 judgment against Microsoft in court. She took them to small claims court because her computer was forcibly upgraded and she couldn't run her business. this, (laughs) This will be very worrying to Microsoft because with hundreds of millions of people having their computers upgraded. If people have problems and there's a legal precedent, it could be very worrying. But hopefully it will be a bit of a lesson to them that uh, maybe you should get people's permission first before you take down their work computer and um, install your own software on it. It's quite fun Googling all the incidences of bad timing where Windows updates have come on mid-conference you know, conference presentations, on public transport notification sites, that sort of thing. I wonder what the discussion was when they decided to make this a feature because <laughs> does it imply that the old operating system is so bad and so insecure that you have to force it on people no matter what for their own good? Um, it's it, no, it's just a t- it's just a very user unfriendly policy, and so what's their rationale? But um, now they now it's costing them money. Maybe they'll have a rethink. I wonder if the rationale is something along the lines of uh, my computer reminding me that I haven't backed up for a certain number of days and maybe they've got evidence that that unless forced, people were happy to hit ignore, ignore. (laughs) Well, that's probably a a case where the computer nagging you might be something you uh, actually don't want to disable, but um, Mm. everyone has to learn the backup lesson the hard way once, I think. Another thing going on around at the moment is if you have a Samsung phone and you've got the Marshmallow OS installed, um, do make sure that you've got a way to, to a back it up, either with your, your sort of find my my Samsung sort of service, um, link it to your Google account, make sure you set up your Samsung account because quite a few people are having trouble when they set up different ways of entering their phone with uh, you know putting in their PIN or their passcode. At a certain point, sometimes that's being rejected for apparently no good reason and then people are needing back up ways to log into their phone and getting stymied if, say, Wi-Fi is turned off or other things. And on that particular phone, lots of people have certain features turned off just to save battery. So it can be a trick. And um, I've had a colleague going through a problem with that today. And it's just, it's awful to see anyone going through backup problems with uh, with phones. So just a little warning call out there. And one little uh, legal tidbit from the United States. There's, there's a case in, in Oregon where a district court magistrate ruled that an IP address isn't enough to identify somebody and hold them responsible for a copyright violation. So somebody was being sued for a, pirating a dreadful Adam Sandler movie, um, and that was the, the ruling. And that's, that's a new development in the United States. It has interesting policy impacts for Australia. It's something I'm quite interested in because in the US they have statutory damages for copyright violations. So if, you, if you're convicted or found to have... Uh, pirated a movie, then you can be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in punitive fines. And mm. this happens to people all the time. And so it creates a huge incentive for people to settle for five or 10 grand, you know, when they get one of these letters, even if they actually have a defense. And until now, 
what, just having it associated with your IP address has been enough that people feel, look, we'd probably, we'd probably better settle. Um, if there's a bit of pushback there from the legal community in the US, that's a good thing. Now, the situation in Australia is that actually if they find you uh, liable for copyright violation, the copyright holder can get their damages from you, which is the cost of the movie. They can't get a $100,000 fine from you. Um, and so the, the the bar is very different there and the incentive for people to, to actually maybe make their case in court is, is a bit higher if they're not looking at a $100,000 fine if they lose. But um, maybe a little later on we'll talk about can do the major parties have uh, copyright policies and could we end up with that punitive uh, damages system that mm. America has here in Australia? Look, that's a really good finding, uh, particularly because sometimes there can be a lack of understanding from the law enforcement side about many people going through one IP address, for example. We've, we've heard that happen a few times, even in Australia that's happened, where people have um, have done takedown notices against an IP and accidentally taken down whole uh, swathes of websites when they were really targeting one person and, and say the court order was targeting one site. So, yeah, we see these problems happen a lot with just basic understanding about internet protocols. Yeah, no, yeah, this is something I've faced in sort of my um, previous work as a sort of tech activist guy. The the literacy is, is pretty low and the, the parliaments and the courts work very slowly and so we're also in an age where technology has made the media cycle very fast. So if there's something, something unpleasant happens online, there can be a, you know, a story doing the rounds at 9am and politicians scrambling for a response by 9.30. Mm. And that response is often going to be, this is dreadful, we need to make it illegal. Um, even though that making it illegal might involve technology that they don't understand, censoring the internet, encryption, those sorts of things. All right, so let's move on to the election part of our election special. When people think about technology issues this election, I think the the first thing that jumps to mind is the MBN. Uh, you were saying something interesting about uh, the MBN and, and thinking about it not so much as just a, a tech issue. Yeah, I noticed that this year the Electronic Frontiers of Australia have done their scorecard for the parties and they've taken NBN policy off the card because they maintain that it's no longer a tech digital niche issue, it's actually a mainstream issue and I think that's borne out by opinion polls. Uh, 70% of Australians um, care about the NBN deeply and want the fastest internet they can get and I don't blame them. The major parties have all been asked about this and they've released policies um, so we can run through those in a second, mm. but but it's it's actually an issue that's f- first and foremost in everybody's minds. I think the you know we're seeing scare campaigns on on health and the economy and whatnot as you do in an election, but this is an issue that's that's not going away because people are feeling more and more like Australia's getting left behind. Yeah, and every time we have an election, uh, infrastructure issues are uh, quite a sexy thing that people want to weigh in on. So it's nice to see this is rated as one of those. Yeah, and if the people want a bit of vision, the scare campaigns are fine they work that's why the politicians go there and and, and but uh if you want to they all think they need to talk about australia in the 21st century and present a little bit of vision mm. and if australia's digital infrastructure isn't part of that conversation then then you're just not not credible I think it's been fascinating uh, this uh, election cycle to see Mike Quigley, the original CEO of NBN Co, uh, going out and being really vocal and talking about what his hopes and dreams were for the NBN and what significant impact it could have on Australia's future. 
and and talking about the disappointments in the plan to date and that uh, it's not too late that there's time to fix this. It's not too late, but, oh, boy, a lot of time and money has been wasted. Yeah. Like even even the, the, the coalition government won the last election saying that they would have this multi-technology mix, which is... Or, or, AKA fraud band on you know on Twitter, <laughs> and that everyone would be sorted by 2016. Well, look where we are, and now they're saying you know 2020 or the early, early 2020s, and that's for the slower slower option. It's a it's a real fiasco. It's a fiasco, and it's embarrassing that they're they're um, they're able to lie to us so easily uh, with their with their policy. Um, what do you call it? Like the faster and cheaper slogan, I guess is the word they like two word slogans now because apparently we can't hold three concepts in our heads anymore so they've they've paired that back just you know to simplify it it's it's really um patronizing and yeah and where does the lying stop and the they just don't understand you know begin um it's 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 been a, a travesty from the get-go. So just to, sort of as a recap, Labor's policy was fibre to the premises to 93% of homes. So that would mean that the vast majority of Australians would have a fibre connection to their home and, a, and you know, one gigabit speeds are, are easily achievable on that infrastructure. When Tony Abbott was opposition leader, he labelled that Labor's NBN a big white elephant. And so the sort of political imperative for the Liberal Party at that time was to, to tear it down. And they did that partly by rubbishing the uses of the NBN. Oh, it's just for people to download movies and how much do people really need to watch games? Um, and then they also did that by coming up with a, a policy that was ostensibly credible but actually took as much money out of the NBN um, project as possible. And that, of course, was the multi-technology mix, fibre to the node, these uh, boxes in the street, and then relying on, on copper and uh, and. Um, hybrid fibre coaxial cable, the uh, old infrastructure to get the rest of the way. And that puts a, puts a huge limit on the speeds that are attainable and it means that it'll all have to be upgraded at some point in the future anyway. It also um, it pushes extra cost on us of maintaining an outdated copper network and an extra cost for individuals of the government not paying for the inf- infrastructure to the house. It's, it's that gap that, that people have to pay and that gap could be really different for people in rural communities. That's true. So, so t- the rural, the rural uh, aspect of this is really, really interesting. I was talking before about how look the NBN is front and centre of people's minds in the election, and that's true here in Brunswick, but it's more true in the in the regional areas where you know economic opportunities are are decreasing. That's the perception, and and frankly, the reality. Um, you know, unemployment is is much higher than it is in the um, urban areas, and so. They not only do they want to be able to stay in rural areas and maintain their lifestyle, and you can do that uh, more easily if you have access to the latest digital services, but they also want the economic benefits that NBN will bring. And so, um, there's not a single country member of parliament or a country, you know, re- regional or rural local council that that isn't thinking about NBN policy. Mm-hmm. And actually, Mike Quigley and uh, Tony Windsor were doing a, a press conference today talking about where's the NBN, you know, in Tamworth. It was mm. it was on the rollout map in 2013, and now now we've got nothing. For me, this crosses over with so many other really vital issues. If you talk about education and the delivery of education, this will be vital to it. But also, if you look at uh, the the brain drain and the export of some of the the really amazing human resources that we have in Australia, uh, the the MBN is a real is a real driver there. If we haven't got the infrastructure to do the best work here, you're going to lose people who are excited about doing that work, and they can't do it here. Yeah. So what's the what's the Australian pitch to a young tech entrepreneur to? Stay in Australia and not say you know go across the pond to California. 
if Australia did have the NBN along the original lines, it's not only that, oh, I have a 100 megabit connection in my house, which I do. I'm one of the sort of lucky few. That means, great, I can, you know, there are services out there that I can access that will use that. But what if, if everybody has that, then you have a market ready to go in the country where everyone will have this, has this enormous like amount of bandwidth and you can innovate and create new services for Australians that that other countries in the world may not even be ready for and we can lead on that. Um, without the NBN, you know, it's much harder to make the case that you should stay in Australia with a smaller market and crumbling infrastructure. We're now 60th in the world on the on the broadband speed rankings. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, you, you wouldn't blame someone for thinking maybe I should set up shop in uh, Silicon Valley. Absolutely. Look, uh, we're going to have to pause on that discussion because we are going to uh, try and get Dr Vanessa Teague on the line. She is an academic at the University of Melbourne and we're going to be speaking to her about electronic voting in Australia. Okay, we're back. Uh, we are about to chat to Dr. Vanessa Teague, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne and has been researching electronic voting and the implications for Australia. Hi, welcome, Vanessa. Hello. That's much better. <laughs> very <laughs> this is Sorry about that. Um, we, we were just quickly running out of time we had trouble uh, connecting to you and that's because you are up in an exciting place up in far north Queensland yeah, exactly greetings from Bob Catacombs <laughs> Welcome. Look, um, we we read a, an interesting piece of research that you've been doing with the University of Melbourne on electronic voting for Australia, and it's not something I knew a lot about before um, before getting into your research. Can you tell us a bit about what prompted you to, to start um, looking into the field? Yes. So I was in the United States through the year two thousand. Uh, hanging Chad debacle and then still there four years later when America shifted over en masse to a whole lot of computerized voting machines that didn't have a voter verifiable paper record. And so I sort of witnessed firsthand how a reliance on technology can actually end up with an electoral process that not only doesn't work but from which you can't really recover and figure out who really deserved to win afterwards. So when I came home to Australia, I have a cryptography and computer security background. And I started getting really interested in the use of computers in Australian elections. And I guess the same fundamental kind of principles apply. There's nothing wrong with using computers to have something to do with elections. But the fundamental theme is, can we scrutinise the entire process? Can we really make sure, as we can if we're watching a paper process, that exactly that the votes are the votes that the voters intended and that all of the votes are properly dealt with and accurately tallied by the system. So as a, as a tech nerd, I'm quite inclined to... to uh, look at interesting, complicated systems and bring encryption into the mix. But on the other hand, I've been present at the counting of the AEC paper ballots, and the system works, you know, pretty well. And the integrity is there for all to see. So, what yes. what sort of conclusions have you drawn? Is there a system that we could likely attain that would have all of those verifiability features, but um, would give us the benefits of um, making the whole process electronic? Okay. Well, there's two very different. I guess there's three very different big uses of computers in different elections in Australia. One is electronic voting in a polling place with a computer. One is voting over the internet. 
And one is the electronic counting process, uh, where, for example, Senate votes and upper house uh, votes in the state parliaments are counted electronically. Um, we know how to do a job of a scrutinisable, verifiable electronic voting process in a polling place. We know how to do a good job of a verifiable, scrutinisable count, um, but we don't know how to do a good job of a verifiable, privacy-preserving internet voting process. And in fact, in the last, the, the main large experiment on internet voting in Australia, which was the New South Wales iVote internet voting project, Alex Haldeman and I discovered a serious security problem during the run of that system in a real election. So after the system had been um, running for a few days, we realised that it was subject to a security weakness which would have allowed an internet-based attacker to find out how the person intended to vote and change the vote before it got sent back into the Electoral Commission. And unfortunately, because the verification process for iVote really isn't complete, um, there's really no way to know whether that security vulnerability was exploited or not. There's no evidence that it was exploited, but there's no evidence that it wasn't exploited either. That's pretty frightening. Maybe we can come back to, to online voting and the, f- the future there in a moment. But you, you said that it's m- m- easier to engineer something that's verifiable in the polling place, and yet from the United States, one hears all sorts of horror stories about proprietary technology and, and um, statistically verifiable fraud. What are they doing wrong and how could we do it differently? Uh, well, not, part of the thing about the United States is that Sometimes every state and sometimes every county runs their elections in a completely different way. So some things in the United States are very bad, and there have been some um, security analyses of some of their um, voting in a polling place systems that have shown uh, quite devastating weaknesses. On the other hand, there are some things in the United States that are done very well. So, for example, in Colorado and California... Uh, they conduct a risk-limiting audit of a paper trail. So you go into the, um, you go into your polling place. You vote either you vote on a computer and it prints out a paper record of your vote for you to read, or you vote on a uh, piece of paper and it scans it in automatically. And then when the electronic list of votes is produced, the a team of statisticians, or at least people informed by statisticians, conduct a rigorous statistical audit of the paper evidence against the electronic vote record. So something like that is a very good way of establishing evidence that that uh, electronic process did the right thing because you're going right back to the paper evidence that the voters actually saw. Um, Another good way of achieving um, that kind of evidence is... Uh, In Victoria, in the last state election, um, I did a lot of work on a project to provide a cryptographic proof to every voter that they had cast the vote that they intended and got that vote accurately included into the count. It was only run at a very small scale, so about a 1,000 voters used the system from uh, a polling place set up in the London, the Australian High Commission in London. And the whole idea is that each voter goes through a quite complicated process to verify that their vote is cast as they intended and uh, then all of the encrypted votes are posted online and the Electoral Commission 
just publishes all this information and you can go and you can check that your vote appears there and then there's a mathematical proof that they're all properly decrypted. And then scrutineers can check that the output of that system goes properly into the count. That's complex, but it sounds doable. That's great. Uh, we were looking at a few weeks ago at the case of Estonia and how they've gone to a paperless e-government and they use a blockchain-based system to let every individual manage their IDs. And uh, I wondered if you'd uh, looked into anything to do with using the blockchain and voting. Yes, so if you're running a verifiable electronic voting system, you need to have some way to make a sort of definitive record of what all the encrypted votes you got actually are. And so there's a lot of talk about using the blockchain for that. Um, I think there are two kinds of questions to ask about that. So the first question is, whatever algorithm you're using to secure the agreement of your blockchain, it's not a perfect public ledger, right? It's a distributed algorithm with some kind of idea or agreement among all the participating parties. It costs some amount of money to disturb the uh, history of the blockchain, but it's not an infinite amount of money. It's a protocol that is secure under certain assumptions about how widely distributed the computational power is. So question number one is, is your election important enough for somebody to spend enough money disturbing that um, ledger? Oh, interesting. And then question number two is, have you actually solved all the problems that you would need to solve in order to run voting over the internet? So, for example, um, putting it up on the blockchain doesn't necessarily do anything about privacy. Mm-hmm. Have you, whatever you had to do to keep the votes private, the blockchain isn't going to help you with that. Um, whatever you had to do to make sure that the voter was casting the vote they really intended to cast, rather than the vote that the malware on their machine intended them to cast, or the vote that the hacker who broke in, who uh, intercepted their connection to the blockchain and modified their vote, intended to cast. None of those questions are necessarily resolved just by the fact that the vote is on the blockchain. So some kind of a public ledger is part of any solution to internet voting, but it's not clear to me either that the blockchain is necessarily the only or the right way to do that, nor that that addresses all of the security problems that need to be solved before we can vote safely over the internet. So I, I note the trends of uh, postal voting and, and uh, pre-polling are increasing every every year, and I think I think about a third of the electorate will actually vote before election day this time. So that must yeah. put a little bit of impetus behind. You know, maybe we should have other ways for people to vote. Are there how how advanced are the moves to uh, allow internet voting in Australia, um, like politically and technologically? Is this a thing in our near future? Well, New South Wales has already run a large internet voting project, and as I said, there were serious security problems in that project and serious weaknesses in the verification protocol. Now, there is a lot of research into verifiable electronic voting protocols, but we don't have anything. I mean, this is exactly my field of research, and after 10 years of working on it, we really don't have anything that makes the verification process for voters easy enough and clear enough that people are actually going to do it uh, in a remote setting. And we don't have a good way of authenticating voters and making sure that the voter, the voter at the other end of the internet connection is the eligible voter that mm. they say they are. And 
the thing about internet voting is that combination between keeping the individual votes private versus providing evidence that you got the whole computation right. So it's the if you don't really care that much about vote privacy, there are plenty of ways to vote securely over the internet and verify the results. But it's the combination of keeping your vote private, even from the Electoral Commission, together with getting the Electoral Commission to produce a complete public evidence trail so that everybody can verify that we got the right results that makes it really hard. So, you know, with the, the way the Senate voting is going, and I'd like to talk about the, the Senate count uh, this time around in a moment, but the, the ballot papers are getting bigger and bigger and the informal rate is going higher and higher, and that raises the question of how do you actually educate people. So could we come up with a technological system that's quite sound and yet fall short of, of actually educating people who have been voting the same way for the last, you know, century and more where they're comfortable with the system and where they're actually able to, uh, to to use it properly. Right. Well, there are plenty of sensible solutions in a polling place, and that's certainly one of the advantages of computerising elections is just preventing people from accidentally voting informally. I agree very much. I mean, um, I have a project going at the moment to try and understand whether we can get some of the best of both worlds by giving people their candidate information electronically and getting them to send back a voter verifiable paper record, even remotely. So the the list of candidates that you get to choose from isn't a secret, right? There's not really any particular reason that we should control access to that information. There's no reason you can download that on the, off the web, print out the vote you intended to cast, and then post it back. And there's some possibility for adding some of the more sophisticated techniques for verifying that it got back to the right place, to that kind of a system. But I think the best thing to do is to pin that onto a plain paper printout of how you intended to vote. Because there isn't really another realistic way that people can actually use to check that their vote is the one that they intended to cast. so, um, so this time around, the Senate voting system has changed. Now, speaking of voter education, uh, the the AEC are also changing the way the count is being done. As I understand it, it's yeah. all going to be done centrally, and it will be electronic um, in the in the yeah. tally up. Um, but I also understand that freedom of information requests and a Senate motion to actually disclose the code that's going to do that has been um, has not been released. It's Yep. Under commercial and confidence, what's your what's your comment on that? Can we trust a system where the source code is not open and available for inspection? No, and we shouldn't have to. And um, in fact, even if the source code was open for inspection, the best we could say about that is we had a good look and we tried to find bugs. Um, it would be a good thing for the Electoral Commission to make the source code openly available for public inspection. Um, it would allow us to find bugs, which would allow them to fix bugs before the system actually went live. Having said that, even if you can see the source code for the system, it doesn't necessarily prove that it has no bugs, it has no security holes, or it was the thing that ran on the day. So I still think there should be a careful audit of the paper evidence against whatever spreadsheet of vote preferences that system eventually puts out. But the idea that we trust a closed source scanning and software database system is completely wrong because there are bugs um, and we found sorry I, can't, I don't know that there are bugs in that particular system <laughs> yeah. there, but there um, the possibility that there might be bugs or security holes has to be taken seriously when we're thinking about the evidence trail that we get about whether our Senate 
votes are the ones that we actually cast. So in particular, we had a look recently at some of the New South Wales local government counts from back in the 2012 New South Wales election, and we found a bug. Um, it's a small error in a small part of their counting code, and the counting code isn't actually available, but there's quite a lot of data and quite a lot of detail about how the count proceeds. And in short, there's enough information for us to see um, that there was an error in the computation of the distribution of preferences in the city, uh, in the council of Griffith. Mm. And um, it turns out that, <laughs> for reasons that I won't go into, um, New South Wales local council results are a little bit probabilistic at the best of times. <laughs> so this error, yeah, it's kind of astounding. Um, apparently everybody else knew this but me. Um, anyway, uh, the error didn't exactly change the result. What it did was it shifted a certain candidate's probability of winning mm. down to a bit below 10%. But if you fix the bug, the candidate's name was Arena Mercury, if you fix the bug, should have won with probability more than 90%. Oh, no. Statistical significance. That's, that's awful. Right. Look, you've given exactly. us... So if yeah. No, no. Oh, look, you've given us another amazing reason why um, open source software can be a really great way to go. Um, Dr. Vanessa Teague, I'm afraid we've run out of time for this discussion tonight. We can see why you're researching this area because it really is a very tasty one. We'll have to uh, point our listeners to your your previous podcast on blockchain and voting which is pretty fascinating um, we've been speaking to dr vanessa teague senior lecturer in the department of computing and information systems at university of melbourne thanks very much vanessa Talk to you. we have just been joined by anthony wong he is the president of the australian computing society and in the wake of the the coming election they've uh, they've actually released a manifesto a federal election manifesto identifying the key areas that should be prioritized by political parties this election period. Welcome, Anthony. Good evening, Vanessa. Thank you for inviting me to your sh program this evening. It's a pleasure. I wonder if you could um, outline for our listeners the five priority areas that you have in mind. Certainly. Um, it's a very exciting time and uh, the SES uh, at the innovation debate at the press club last week uh, launched our election manifesto covering five key areas. Uh, Firstly, about digital skills and digital literacy, which we all heard about in the last 12 months. Diversity, cybersecurity, which is another important area, NBN and policy framework. That's excellent. So these are, these are areas that we are pretty interested in here. Perhaps we could talk about digital skills and literacy first. Um, how, do you, how do you see, uh, how do you recommend the government tackle that big issue? Well, as you probably read from our manifesto, uh, the Australian digital economy is going to grow from $79 billion in 2014 to $139 billion by 2020. That's from our Digital Pulse report. So that's a significant uh, increase of 5 to 7% uh, in our GDP. So obviously with the growth in digital com economy, we're going to need more literal digital skills and digital literate uh, Australians. So we, we currently 
be looking at a shortage in by 2020 of 100,000 ICT professionals. So it's going to be a challenge to, to narrow that gap. And so, so obviously there are a number of initiatives that the government can do to mm-hmm. narrow that gap. So, Anthony, when you're looking at your membership base and you're seeing skills gaps there, are you seeing them across the board in industry or are you seeing them, you know, at the entry point or mid-career gaps? Where do you, where do you see things happening? Uh, just just stepping back, Vanessa, mm. the skill shortage is not just Australian an Australian issue. Mm. It's a global phenomena. Uh, as the world competes on a global basis in the digital economy, mm. uh, you're going to see an uptake and up demand in, in digital skills and ICT skills. Uh, just in the area of cybercrime, cybersecurity, uh, knowing that everything now is connected or will be connected by computers so we're going to see driverless cars fridges talking to computers fridges ordering uh groceries whether they've been used um people getting medication through computers power, power utilities powered by computers so all that is is it's going to increase the demand for ICT professionals, but particularly is also going to increase demand for cybersecurity specialists. So currently we've been informed that there were watch deficit of 1.5 million professionals by 2020 in the cybersecurity area alone. So it's a huge growth by 21% over the next five years. So obviously um, cybersecurities can can be from start entry, mid to midterm to to uh, uh, expert expert level. So it's it's on every level. So uh, Labor have announced a policy coding in every Australian school. They they call coding the literacy of the twenty first century and want uh, want it taught at primary and secondary school level in every every school of the in the country. That's their aspiration. Uh, they they mention that there should be opportunities for teachers to train in that, but I I presume you welcome the initiative. But what are the challenges there for actually skilling up the teaching workforce and coming up with a curriculum encoding that makes sense, you know, at every level from primary, secondary, and tertiary levels? Thanks for that question. I assume that's Warren. Warren. Oh, this is Colin actually this evening. Uh, Colin, sorry. Oh, no, that's Warren. <laughs> yes, uh, good question. Uh, I must uh, inform our uh, radio listeners that it's more than just a labor policy, it's also a liberal policy. Um, we have recently the digital technology curriculum been introduced in most states and territories. One of the programs we're working on uh, with our sister society in the UK, the British Computer Society, to introduce support systems for teachers teaching ICT curriculum in primary and secondary schools. So we're looking at establishing resources through the SES, working with governments, state and federal, and territory governments to assist teachers to better teach ICT in schools. Because we found that it's a problem when you have a teacher who, who may not probably know more than what the students are doing in terms of the devices and the usage of technology. So it's important to to show expertise and to champion uh, the, the the profession and and the uh, and the growth of the ICT professionals. 
What about the students themselves? I see a, a slight parallel with that Asian languages policy here because we all agree it would be better if there was more literacy in that regard as well. But the, again, it, teaching, training the teachers is difficult, but also interesting the students. It's a hard sell to students that they should be learning Korean to negotiate trade details at some point in the future sometimes. And I wonder if, if primary school kids and high school kids can also appreciate the value of you know, coding skills later in life um, is there work to be done as to to get the kids interested and to see it as a valid career path as well as training the teachers so they can actually impart the knowledge? Across uh, Australia, there are many programs targeted for both children, uh, both girls and, and boys. Uh, there are many programs throughout Australia, but obviously we need more of that because we're going to need more ICT professionals moving into the future. Um but obviously, champions in ICT will be also important for, for our young potential ICT professionals growing up uh, from our primary, secondary schools. Because without the champion, like, like TV shows, like lawyers and doctors, um, how would we encapsulate or, or envision the thinking for our young people to actually visualize what careers that would have in ICT, knowing that technology will be controlling most of the things we're going to be using as we move forward. So it being embedded, it's not just coding, it's about uh, teaching kids to be entrepreneurs in the creative, in the outlook, in using technology to create uh, solve problems in today's society using technology to data mine and, and look at information as how to predict certain uh, symptoms or cure for diseases coming to the future. So there are many, many potentials, um, including uh, creating apps for driverless cars in the future. Mm-hmm. So the careers in IT is numerous and pervasive. And a related issue is is diversity, and that's something that you've put on the table in your manifesto. I note that all the th- all three of the the um, major parties. Labor, Liberal and the Greens have come up with initiatives for this election on um, increasing women's participation in, in scientific and technical careers. That's something that you think is important as well. What should, what should government be doing in that area? If you look at the statistics from our digital polls, uh, women currently only make up 28% of the ICT workforce. If you compare that to across all professional industry, women comprise 43%. So ICT workforce starts from a low level where we need to encourage more women into the workforce. And obviously, uh, things, issues like pay gap uh, for women in, in the industry, uh, getting more young girls to take careers in ICT, knowing it's not just about coding, it could be project management, it could be managerial, uh, everything is IT, so it's, it's a good base skills, including uh, professional skills for, for young people looking at careers in IT. So definitely we do have a problem with women embracing uh, taking up careers in IT and, and definitely we'll be encouraging working with government programs to, to narrow that gap. Um, so we, we started out the uh, the show talking about the NBN. This is probably the tech issue that's most in the minds of the average voter uh, in 2016. It's also a priority f- uh, for you. 
uh, you, I know you want to is sort of accelerate the rollout. How, how do you think the NBN policy has been handled as part of this election and b- beforehand and what's the uh, ACS's policy on where it should head from, from this point? From our manifesto, we, we've done a bit of research and we've found that Australia's global internet speed ranking has fallen to 60 in 2015 and over the last three years from ranking of 30. So that's an alarming drop. Uh, so definitely we encourage our government, the, the new government, to accelerate the rollout of NBN because it's important for this new digital economy. Uh, internet is a backbone, just like electricity. You plug in and you expect it to be there, and not only to be there, but to provide fast speeds for all the different systems and applications that you could possibly be using and and utilizing in the near future. So we're encouraging our government to activate, to to revise our activation target from 4.4 million to five, and actually to revise the RFS target from 9.1 to 10 million. And perhaps another recommendation that we have in our manifesto is to perhaps prioritise two areas for SMEs and for education institutions. Anthony Wong, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening about the five priority areas that the ACS has identified uh, that are important this federal election. And uh, we do wish you well with campaigning for those. Thank you, Vanessa. And... uh Hello and goodbye to our listeners. Colin, final bits of our election special. There's just a couple more tech issues that uh, that aren't necessarily front and centre in the campaign, but I think are important and not talked about enough. And one of those is copyright. So we touched on before about this system in America. There's a lot of pushing in Australia for similar systems from such as punitive damages from industry, and uh, the. The government's actually looked into reforming copyright. The Australian Law Reform Commission put out a comprehensive report recommending reform. Uh, So did the Productivity Commission. And that includes a a fair use exemption for copyright law in Australia, which doesn't really exist at the moment. So we don't... Artists and digital content creators don't have the flexibility to take something that might be under copyright, use it in a transformative way or for the purposes of a review and have clear legal protections that safeguards their own work and you know, protects them from litigation. Uh, that's a very strong recommendation from law reform, and yet uh, none of the major parties are particularly willing to take it on. Um, nobody has responded to the ALRC report on copyright reform, but I think this is going to be a very an issue that just gets more and more important um, for artists and for consumers as you know, the digital revolution unfolds. We finally get an NBN and the you know creation of content as well as finding new ways to consume it, legal and perhaps not so legal, you know, constantly making the news and creating headaches for lawmakers. Mm. And the other issue is encryption. So uh, Electronic Frontiers Australia wrote an open letter to the parties this week calling for them to come out strongly and support encryption. This is something that you often see in, you know, a common feature of politics is that whenever there's a security scare, the law enforcement community, you know, for obvious reasons, they... Uh, petition the government for stronger tools to help them do their job. No one would blame them for that. 
But encryption is something that they often see as getting in the way, and this has been very heavily debated in the US recently with the uh, iPhone and the FBI trying to get Apple to create a version of the operating system that would let them uh, break the encryption and access that information. And I think it's just a matter of time before that becomes um, an issue in Australia. There might be some incident or otherwise just a natural progression looking for ways to get around encryption so we can use it to target bad guys. But you can't have it both ways. Once encryption is weakened, even if it's for a good cause to get at a terrorist, then you weaken it for everybody else. And that makes things such as digital uh, transactions less secure um, and undermines privacy for everyone. But, you know, the, the political parties aren't talking about this and that's something that, that from a digital rights perspective mm. is going to become more and more of a pressing issue. So I'd love to hear that talked about during the campaign. Yeah, I, I think that encryption issue is very important and it you know, underpins all of the uh, the gains that we hope to make in the government services sector using, using you know, services through things that will need high encryption. The government will need it from their side. As we just heard from Anthony Wong that cyber security is one of the huge skill shortages that we're, we're going to have and but it's so crucial to the economy and you can't have security without encryption so mm. look we wanted to leave you with some some helpful resources coming into this election uh some online resources uh one is votecompass.abc.net.au the invaluable tool that lets you uh fill out a little fun survey and figure out where your political allegiances lie and how those allegiances uh align with policy statements from various uh candidates there's also a www.cluevoter.com where you can simulate and figure out how to vote in the Senate. Now that the ballot papers are the size of a coffee table, you uh, might want to might want a little bit of help and a little bit of practice first to see how you're going to rank all the candidates. And if you want to know a bit more about that Cluey Voter tool, do uh, listen on demand to Michelle on Spoke Tuesday morning about 9.45am when she spoke to the Cluey Voter developer. We'd like to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Dr Vanessa Teague, Senior Lecturer in computing at University of Melbourne on electronic voting and to Anthony Wong, ACS president, talking about their election manifesto. We've been bite into it. Thanks so much for listening this evening. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Colin, for joining us. Thanks to our podcaster, Justin Pett. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.